Ian was asking me, we were riding in a truck, I think it was Ian was the one, said, what are you going to preach on this morning, Dad? And I said, well, you know, I was thinking, the Bible's pretty good, let's just continue on right where we were last week, just continue on in Luke. And he said, Dad, it's Easter, you can't talk about hell on Easter. <laughs> I said, I promise, I'm not going to, we'll leave that behind. Um, Eric suggested I move on to purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> that was his suggestion. I'm going to ignore that. Actually, what I I was really sitting there thinking, where can we go with this? You know, where Pastor Lindsay asked me to preach, and I said, "What am I going to do?" And I said, I remembered back to something. Um, taught a few different things, but Dr. Kersey always told me that. He said, "If you're ever looking for something to preach, just preach right where you're at." I said, "The Bible's pretty good. Um, you can never go wrong." And so I started reading chapter 17. And I sat down early this week and I read through Luke, we're going chapter 17, and I read through the whole Luke chapter 17. And I sat there and prayed and read through it and I said, Lord, uh, maybe we're going to move to 18. Honestly, because I read through it and there was good things and um, some good stories and some good stuff in there. And, and I never want to make the statement that, that God doesn't have anything to say. But it was just like I read it and said, well, this is going to be a very short sermon if I just continue on into verse into chapter 17. But it was reminded, you know, God, God is, is uh, true and that His Word is inexhaustible. Amen. And if you study it, and if you diligently take the time to divide it and to read it and just sit there and meditate, the Bible says to meditate on His Word, it never ceases to amaze me what He can bring out of His Word. Even in stuff that you, you just think, God, I know there's something there, but I sure don't see it. I'm not getting it. Um, he can just ex- ex- expand it and, and enlighten in such a way that you, you never saw it before. Amen. And, and the, here's another amazing thing I found about His Word. is We could probably go back. As a matter of fact, I know we can because I was reading some commentaries. And study the exact same verses we read or we went through last week and find something completely different. Spend another hour just on last week, the same passage, because it is inexhaustible. Every time you go there, God will just reveal something else. And the Holy Spirit will show you something else about Himself, about you, about the world you live in. There, there's so many things. And so by the time I was done studying, I was, I was only able to fit five verses in all this. So we're going in Luke 17. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 1 to 5. We found a lot of great stuff in there. And really the, the two things that I found in there were the idea of offenses and forgiveness. And if you read through uh, 1 to 5, you're going to see that there's... He teaches that offenses are going to come. Uh, offenses in the way that, that things that are cause a person to stumble, things that bring sin, they're going to come. But when they do, don't let them come through you. Don't be the one that brings them. They will be here, but don't, let, don't be the one that brings them. And when they do come, if they come from another believer against you, we need to, how do we handle them? We rebuke them. And we offer forgiveness. And in the end, we see that what we do is we just forgive, we forgive, we forgive. And when we're really sick of forgiving, we keep forgiving. And in, in chapter 5, or verse 5, you see that the, the disciples saw this was a really tough thing. To live as a Christian takes the Holy Spirit. We can't do it without Him. It's absolutely impossible. So let's read through uh, verse 1 to 5 and see what God has to say today. 
Then said he, that's Jesus, unto the disciples, It is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. So the, the very beginning, in verse 1, there's a, a uh, interesting thing there. I ask the question, what can we be sure of in this world? You know, in a day-to-day life, it's kind of nice to have some things that you can count on. So you can say, man, I'm sure of this. I'm sure that, you know, I've got a job. Boy, that's nice to know when you have one. Nancy was talking about it. It's nice to know. It's, it's nice to know that I'm saved. I'm sure I'm saved. I'm sure Jesus Christ is coming back. I'm sure my spouse loves me and cares for me. You know, those kind of things. There's things that it's good to be sure of. Those are all good things. But here it seems like something he's teaching is, is, is a, a guarantee in this life doesn't really seem to be a good thing. He says that we can be guaranteed in this world that offenses will come. So what's an offense? When he's talking about that, what does he mean by offense? Well, it's kind of this word, it's called scandalon. I can't even pronounce it, but it's kind of like scandalous. It's a word that means it's, it's something that causes one to fall into sin. <clears throat> it could be heresies, or temptations to sin, or, <clears throat> or trials of your faith. Anything, an offense is something that causes a person to fall into sin. So here's Jesus teaching his disciples, and he looks at him and says, it's important, it's a guarantee, something you can count on, things must come into this world to cause others to sin. And you think, well that seems kind of opposite of what Jesus came to do. Didn't he come to deliver us from it? Why in the world would he say, it's guaranteed that there's going to be offenses in this world? Well, one of the reasons is, go all the way back to Genesis. Go to chapter 4. And then when you do that, leave your finger there and go to John. And we're going to look at both of these. John chapter 15. Genesis 4, verse 7. This is right after the Garden of Eden. They've been kicked out. Sins come into the world. Cain and Abel are here. And Cain and Abel give their sacrifices, their offerings. And God is dealing with Cain because he didn't accept it. And he says this in verse 7. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Go over to John 15 and we'll look at both of those. 
John 15, 19 says this, If you were of the world, the world would love, you, love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The world is systems. It's ruled by who? Back here. The devil and sin. And what does sin do? It lies. It calls him like this lion. It lies in wait, ready to jump out and destroy you. The reason Jesus said that offenses and temptation to sin must come because Jesus understood this world better than anybody. We live in a world that is fallen and we need to be on our guard because sin is like this lion and we're walking down the path. We're walking through the jungles or wherever you want to say and it's hiding right around the next corner. And if you, for just one moment, take your eyes off of Jesus or take your eyes off of where you're headed you get lazy in your Christian walk what's sin going to do? it's just going to jump out and devour you you ever remember the Pilgrim's Progress is a great example of that the guy's walking down that path and there's those I think it was lions or dogs or something chained up on each side of that path and he had to if he stayed on the path it wasn't going to get him was it? but sin is right there just ready to jump out and devour us we live in this fallen world in John 16, 33, one of my favorite passages of the Bible, because it really helped me overcome a lot of sin early on in my Christianity, says this, we live in a fallen world, right? Offenses are going to come. We are not of this world, and the world hates us. That's really depressing. It says this, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. It says you're going to have peace. How do you have peace? In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Offenses are going to come. Trials and struggles are going to come. We live. The moment you walk out of this door, I say that all the time. Really, it's not. The moment you sit right here, it's just a little easier when you're in church. But when you get out in that world, the devil is hiding right around the corner. How many of us has walked out of church excited, feeling really great, doing well for God, and you, you, you get in your car, and you just, it all breaks down and falls apart. Man, the devil is just ready to get us. It's like, what took you long, so long to get out to the car? I've, I've seen other guys do that to their wives, you know. And it's, it, it just takes us about that long to sin, right? And to just get taken over by the devil. He's coming to get us. But he says, how can we have peace? We know that sin is, is, is there. We know that offenses is coming. The devil's ready to, to, to destroy us. We can have peace. Because Jesus Christ overcame the world. Amen. And who lives in us? Who lives in you? The Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, God, the fullness of God, lives in us. I remember when I first got saved, I, there was some sins that was really bad in my life that I was trying to overcome, and I just couldn't do it. I was struggling. I remember reading this verse, and, and, and I read this one, and I read the one in 15. And I realized, the reason that I'm struggling so much is because I've become this new person. I'm no longer of this world. I've been taken out, and now this world hates me. This world, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, the world hates you. It doesn't just tolerate you or dislike you or, or say, you know, I'm going to put up with you, but I don't really like you. It, it hates you, and it wants to destroy you. It wants to crush you. But Jesus Christ overcome the world, and that thought, Gave me so much encouragement. Every time sin would then come upon me, and I could feel myself, you know, you've been there, right? You're just like, 
I know I'm about to sin. I don't want to, but I feel like I'm, I'm the, the, the Star Wars tractor beam kind of thing, right? Where he's just like, I can't get out of it. I'm, I'm going to do it. And here it comes. I see it. And you remind yourself, no, I don't have. This is just stupid. I don't have to go do that. Amen. Jesus Christ lives in me and he overcame the world. I don't have to do it. Amen. Isn't that a blessing? Tell me that doesn't give you some peace. You get up in the morning and you're struggling with some sin, some, some thing. A lot of mine was just a lot of addictions that I had that I just couldn't get over. Jesus Christ says what? I wake up in the morning and I know, oh, today's going to be a struggle. I'm going to have to overcome this. And he says, no, it's not a struggle at all. I've overcome the world and I live in you. Abide in me. Isn't that wonderful? So it takes what, what, what Jesus said there about offenses coming and something that could be, ooh, this is not good, to something that can give you peace. Man, offenses are going to come. And every time I overcome sin, what happens? God gets the glory. Amen. Every single time I overcome sin, Satan gets crushed, and I, and God, I give God the glory. Yes. Man, that's a wonderful way to look at the Christian life. It's not a drudgery that we just plug along and say, Oh, I just got to do it. I just don't want to sin anymore. I just got to obey these rules. No. I have the opportunity to overcome sin and give God glory every single day. That's, that's pretty exciting to me. Amen. So what's another reason, though? Go over to 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, Because he makes it also sound like it's got a purpose. It's not just the fact that it's going to happen, but there's a purpose to it. 1 Corinthians 11.19. There's another must here. And he's talking about very similar things. It says these heresies. These heresies are things that, false teachings, and, and, and things that pull people away from the faith. And it says this, For there must also be heresies among you. That's a really odd statement, isn't it? Because we spend a lot of our time trying to crush heresies, trying to put down false teachers and to point them out. And as well, we're supposed to do that. We're going to see it here in a minute. But he says, heresies must come. Why must they come? Heresies must, also, must be also among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. How do you tell the difference between a true believer and a false believer? It's the ones that's preaching the truth. By, by, by these heresies coming, it helps us identify the true and the false. It helps us to look out. We need to study this word diligently, know our Bible, know the scriptures, know what truth is so that we can identify the false. And then we can then say, you're not part of this. You're, you're not here. What if a person is walking and living in a heresy, a, a, a belief that is not true? It's, it's wrong. And we don't teach the truth. There, there's no separation there. And we don't talk to them about it. That person will die and go to hell having believed a falsehood. Right? These Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. What a great opportunity to rescue somebody that is because of a false teaching, is on their way to hell. They're not the enemy. They're on their way to hell. They're an evangelistic opportunity. See, Christianity, it's not, it's became, but it's not. This 
wishy-washy, just whatever you believe in, however you really want to interpret the Bible, that's okay. That's not Christianity. We, we get so caught up in wanting to be unified that we just let anything go. I've been in some contact with some people since I've been down in Atlanta. The, the one man, he, he believes fundamental Christianity. You go and talk to him. He believes some very solid biblical truth. If you were to hold him and say, I want you to write me an essay on some biblical truths, he would be able to write out some really good stuff. But yet, he's afraid to uphold that and say, this is the truth. Because what it does then, it alienates him from others who aren't willing to uphold that. And in an effort to be unified with every believer out there, or every so-called believer out there, remember, the wheat and the tares, they look alike, right? Just because they look like a Christian doesn't mean they are. Because even if they can even act like one, doesn't mean they are. The truth is what separates them. Right? And, and do they know it? And he's so scared to death to... Not, not, not to say, well, you're a terrible person, you're teaching the wrong. But to at least teach what he believes. He'll say what he believes, and then he'll say, yeah, but that's just what I believe. And it can be anything else. No, Jesus Christ said... Go to Luke 12, verse 51. I love this verse because in this day in Christianity, everybody just wants to ignore the words of Christ a lot of times and say, well, Jesus is just love. Well, what does love mean? You know, What does it mean when Jesus loved? Do you really understand it? Jesus didn't come to condemn. We don't condemn. We accept anybody. Come on in. Let's just bring everybody in. It's okay. As long as you name the name of Jesus Christ, you're okay. You're fine. Just believe in Jesus. Well, so do the demons. They believe in Jesus. Right? I love this verse. I say, well, how do you handle this one? You know, Jesus Christ is all about unity. Yeah, He is. Unified around Him. Verse 51 says, Suppose ye that I come to give peace on this earth? I tell you, no. But rather division. Go to Matthew. And let's look at what he says a little more about this. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus Christ came to this earth. And the moment he came, he created division. He not only divided people and groups and things. He divided the entire of history. Look at our dates. Our entire calendar is separated and divided by Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ. He's all about division. The only unity Jesus is concerned about is, like I said, around Him. That's the only unity He's concerned about. If, it's not, if He's not at the center of whatever unifies people, they're not truly unified. Matthew says this, chapter 10, verse 34. says, Think that I'm come to send peace on the earth? I've come not to send peace, but a sword. What's a sword do? cuts things. It divides things, doesn't it? For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Wow. Does that mean that we're now supposed to be these kind of people that just run around saying, uh, you know, pointing out every heresy and every doctrine that's wrong and telling people how wrong they are and just purposely trying to create all this division? No. Did Jesus do that? 
He was, he was loving and kind and compassionate. But his goal was what? To unify people to himself. If you're going to go and create this division, it needs to be with the goal of unifying people to Jesus. But Jesus did come to divide. What else brings division in Christianity? Go to Hebrews chapter 4. There's a lot of things in Christianity that bring division. In a good way. I'm not saying this is a bad... There are some divisions that are in a bad way, but in a good way. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 11 says this, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God comes and exposes and divides. It separates the good from the bad. It comes in and does surgery even in ourselves, right? And it says, oh, that needs to come out. I need to divide that and pull that out. The word of God divides. What about this? Think about all the way at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. What happens? It says God spoke and things came into being, right? And then God continued speaking things into being. And what happened almost 75% of the time when he spoke? He divided things. Light from the dark, the earth, the, the waters above from the waters below, the land from the waters, the day and night. God's word divides. God's word has been dividing since the day it created. God's word is, is, is very often used to separate and to divide. What's something else? This one I love. I was thinking through these things in Christianity that divide. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This one kind of got me a little bit excited thinking about my, my life and, and, and a point in my life when I got saved. Think about this. Does salvation create any division? It better or it's not true. If salvation doesn't create a division, and I'm not one to say that you've got to have a very second moment point in history, but if there's not some change between the day before you were saved and the time period after you were saved, if there's not where you can look at it and say, that was the old man, this is the new man, go read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Salvation creates a definite division. True salvation. If somebody looks at you and says, um, I'm a believer. I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm going to heaven. And uh, this happens all the time down at Five Points. The guy's like, I'm getting drunk off of his breath. You know, that kind of thing. It's so bad. And, and, and he says, yeah, you know, but you know, it's just one thing I do. And I like, you, where do you go to church? No, I don't have any use for church. Have you read your Bible? No, I haven't read my Bible. So explain to me how you're any different than the day you got saved. Well, I believed in Jesus. You believed in Jesus. Really, you called out on His name. That's, you called out on His name. And the result is what? Nothing. Salvation creates a difference. You, your, your desires, 
your heart. You all of a sudden you go from saying, "Yeah, God's word. I mean, it's it's neat. It's good. It's it's okay to man. I love to study this word because when I study it, I learn about the one that saved me. I love to study this word because other people need to know about it, and I want to tell them. I love to to pray because I'm talking to my Creator, my Savior. I love to teach my children the Bible. I don't have to. I love to because they're going to want to be able to grow up and walk in His ways. And I know what His Word does for them, right? I love my brother and sister in Christ as annoying as they can be at times. Because I know me. I'm annoying. I know that. But we can love one another through that. Why? Because we both have the same Father. Before I was a Christian, if you annoyed me, goodbye. i got no use for you, right? But now that I'm a Christian, I realize i got to learn to walk with you. i got to learn to get through some struggles. I love you because, not because you're any better, because I've been changed. And now I want to love you. Does that make sense? Look over your life and say, man, is there a change in me? Salvation should, must, create a division in the history of your life on this earth. If it doesn't, you're not saved. I'm just... You're not. The Bible says so. A new creation. Old things have passed away. And if, if that hurts, if you sit, hear somebody say that and you're like, well, how are you to tell me whether or not I'm saved? Well, there's another division that wasn't made. Humility. And think about it. Say, man, I, I better check myself and see, am I really saved? Because it should create a division. What's another one? Something we get to do today. Another exciting thing I was thinking about. Uh, we're already here in the Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be in this area later on today. This table is set up for the Lord's Supper. We were talking about it Saturday morning at uh, our Bible study. The Lord's Supper. What a blessed thing to do every single week. There's a lot of good things it does, but one thing it does is it creates a division in this room. Those who can partake and those who cannot. And that may seem to be kind of a mean heart. What do you mean? You know, you want to be able to delineate between those who can and cannot? Yeah. Most definitely. 1 Corinthians 10, 20 and 21. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of the devils. The Lord's Supper creates a division. You can only do one or the other. You cannot rightly take of the Lord's Supper and still be in sin. You're going to one or the other. You can't do both. And the Lord's Supper, every week when we take it, there's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come in and say, and create this divide. Say, which side are you on? And the blessing in doing that, you'd say, man, that's so mean. That's, that's wrong. The blessing in doing that is if you're on the wrong side, and that, that fast you can be put back over here and say, oh, I can now take you to the Lord's Supper. I can be put through repentance, through forgiveness, through the blood of Jesus Christ. I can now be moved over here. And if that division hadn't a came, if that Lord's Supper, that time didn't come, then you would have came to church, heard a message, sung some songs, and walked out the door no different than when you walked in. Isn't that a blessing? 
to think about. There's been times I've been sitting there getting ready for the Lord's Supper, and God's like, hey, Brian, you didn't deal with that. It's like, ooh. If we hadn't had the Lord's Supper, could he have dealt with it? Of course. But it gave him an opportunity to deal with something that he needed to do with me. So these divisions are most definitely going to come. But the second part of that first verse, go back to Luke. It says this, Woe unto him through whom they come. Just because these divisions, these separations, these heresies, these different, these temptations, just because they come into this world, doesn't mean that we need to be the one running around creating them. It's kind of like made me think of Romans where Paul says, you know, what, that I should continue in sin that grace may abound? No, we don't read this and say, hey, look, every time that these divisions come in, you know, Christ said they have to come. Jesus said that they're going to come, so I need to help God out, and I'm going to start running around causing all of y'all to fall into sin. No, he says this, the exact opposite, woe unto him through whom they come. Go to Galatians 1.8. We're talking about heresies. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you that is than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. You come and preach a gospel or speak a gospel or teach somebody something that is incorrect and causes them to stumble or causes them not to misunderstand God, he says what? Let you be accursed. That's a pretty harsh language. You need to make sure when you're speaking, when you're teaching the gospel, when you're going out and spreading the gospel, when you're sharing the gospel with people, you've got it right. Because if you've got it wrong, the Bible says what? Let him be accursed. As a side note, if anybody ever has to uh, speak with Mormons, you know, Mormon missionaries, if you see the guys on the bikes and the little tags, stop them. They'll always talk. If you call them out, they almost have to talk, I think. It may be a rule. But remember Galatians 1.8. Open up the front of their Book of Mormon and say, Is this what you teach? Oh, most definitely. And then take the Bible and say, Do you also teach this? Is this the Word of God? And they say, Oh yeah, that's the Word of God. Open up the Book of Mormon and in the very front it says, Another gospel delivered to so-and-so by the angel of so-and-so. And then go read Galatians 1 and say, If anybody or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, you can use their own book to prove and say, So... Why should I read another gospel from an angel, which your book claims to be? And show them that. And they believe both of these to be word of God. One of them's wrong. That's a great tool you can use if you're ever witnessing with uh, Mormons. Very simple. And it, it uh, cuts right to, the, right to the heart of the matter with them. But if we're false teachers, we're to be accursed. That's what he says. Whoa, woe unto you. That's a bad thing. You don't want Christ in referring to you to say, woe unto you. Go to 2a, the very first part of, chat, of verse 2. It says, It was better for you that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he was cast into the sea, than if he should offend one of these little ones. Despite the fact that sin, or that, that these offenses must come, that, that it, Jesus said they're going to come, they have to come. There's a lot of good reasons for them, there's some bad, but they will come. He says, If they come through you, sin is such a bad thing that the result of the person who brought that sin or caused another to stumble 
you should be cast into the ocean with a big, huge millstone around your neck and drowned. There's all kinds of things people talk about how bad that was. The Jewish people hated to be drowned. Needless to say, this right here was a very bad thing. Imagine being drug out in the middle of the ocean, big rock tied around your neck, and thrown overboard. That's just not good. That's really bad. The Bible says sin is so bad. Go to Proverbs 15.9. See how bad sin is. Proverbs 15.9. We say, oh, you know, sin's bad. Just don't want to do it. Jesus Christ paid for it. But it says here that in 15.9, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loveth them that followeth after righteousness. The way of the wicked, sin, the way of evil people, is what? It's an abomination to God. Think about that for a second. He's saying, offenses may come, you may cause people to stumble, but woe unto you through who they come. If by something you teach, say, do, the way you live, causes another to stumble, you've just caused them to commit an act that is an abomination to God. That's a pretty big deal. You think we ought to be careful how we live? Think sin is really bad? Why else is sin bad? Well, go to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going all over the place today. I hope you're enjoying our walk through the Bible. <clears throat> 1 verse 7. We'll go ahead and read 6. It says, To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace. So how bad is sin? Well, sin is so bad that God took on the flesh of a man, came to this earth, lived and was beaten, crucified, and offered up His blood to pay the penalty for it. Uh, this is the thought that hit me when I was thinking about it. He said, Woe unto them that causes one to stumble. You're going to see in a minute that the, the, those little ones are fellow believers. Saying, if you cause a fellow believer to stumble and to commit a sin, is that fellow believer going to be forgiven? Is the sin that they commit, if you cause a fellow believer to stumble and they commit a sin, is that sin going to be forgiven? Of course it's going to be forgiven, right? They're a believer. They're going to heaven and the penalty has been paid. So by your action, by your teaching, by, the, by something I say, do, live, I cause another one to commit a sin. That sin that they, they commit was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we take that so lightly. We just say, well, you know, it's forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ takes care of it. That's a big deal. Our Savior, our God, our Creator, the Almighty God took on the form of a man, offered Himself on a cross and spilled His blood so that that person could commit that sin and be forgiven. And I caused them to do it. Now you see why He says... They should have a millstone hung around their neck. That's a 
big deal when we do that. Sin is a huge thing. What else did he do? He, he died to forgive the sins, but go to uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15. We've already been near there. It says this, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He died not only to forgive our sins, but he died, died so that they could live without sin. And here we are, taking this child of God that he died for so that they could have victory and live without sin and causing them to fall back into it. We need to be real careful with how we live. What about John chapter 10? This is another one. I thought, Ooh, oh man. Go to verse 7. <clears throat> then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. And all that ever come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come, that they might have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth, giveth his life for the sheep. When I cause a brother to stumble... I cause a brother to fall into sin. I've caused a sheep, one of Jesus' little sheep, to stumble. How much does he care about them? We say that and we just think, oh, it's just fairy tale stories or nursery rhymes when we were kids. Jesus loves little children and his sheep. I'm not talking about little children, I'm talking about believers in general. Jesus loves his sheep. He's the shepherd of his sheep. He cares about them. He watches over all of us. He loves us so much. And I'm going to go in and cause one of those that he loves so much to fall into sin? How could I do that? Why would I do that? Sin's a big deal. This is one of his that he died for, that he loves, he keeps, he carries. You know, you see those pictures of Jesus holding his sheep, right? I mean, he loves them that way. He protects them and cares for them, and then we would cause one of them to stumble. Man, I don't want to be that. We already mentioned it. Who are these little ones? Go to Matthew chapter 18 so we can, just to be sure who those little ones are and let you know that he really is talking about believers. You know, a lot of times we see stuff like that and we say, man, don't cause those little children to sin. You know, watch, how, watch when you're around little kids. Mothers and dads, raise your children right. Don't cause those little kids to stumble. We may even say new believers to stumble. Well, what's he say here? Matthew 18. At the same time, in verse 1, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child and said, to him, and said unto him, and set him in the midst of them. And verily, I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little one, I flipped too many pages, as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one of such little one, my child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. 
He repeats this again here. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe unto that man by whom the offenses come. These little ones, you picture what's going on there. Jesus is sitting with these people, and they come to him and say, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he grabs this little kid. He says, hey, you got to be just like this child to be a true believer. You don't have to be little again. You have to have what? You must humble yourself and become totally dependent on your Father in Heaven to be a true believer. You must give up all effort on your own to take care of yourself, to provide for yourself. You must take care, give up all those claims on your own properties, on you, on me, anything that says me is gone. I'm just humble, I'm trusting, and I put all my faith in my Father. And then he, he clarifies this, and he says in verses 5 and 6, these children, he's talking now, he's comparing the true believers to this little child he put up, these children, those who humbled themselves as a child. So we know that in these parallel verses here, who is the little children? The little children is any true believer. So if you read back, Go back to Luke and look at that again, thinking about that. It says, offenses are going to come. They're going to cause people to stumble. These little children are going to stumble. But woe unto you if you bring this offense that causes a true believer to stumble. Now that all of a sudden gets kind of difficult, right? Because now I'm responsible for how I live and how I behave in every area of my life. Every Christian around me has now become impacted by my life and I have to answer for how I impact their life what I do what I say how I live what I teach I now become responsible for you that's kind of overwhelming you're like okay well I might want to just quit because this is going to be hard if you cause a true believer to sin in some way you'd be better off taken out in the ocean putting this boat a big rock tied around your neck and thrown overboard. Think about that. Now all of a sudden, anytime you make a decision or you teach something or you live in such a way, do you ask yourself, how is this going to affect the other believers around me? Do you ever ask yourself that? you think Jesus wants us to ask that question? How is this going to affect. In Romans it says that we're going to give an account for our lives and how we live. In Romans chapter 14. Go to 14 verse 13. And imagine yourself for just a second in Romans chapter 14 verse 13. Imagine yourself standing before God and answering this. It says in 12, let every one of us give account shall give an account of himself to God. It says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably? Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Remember what we talked about a minute ago? Let not then your good 
be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What are we willing to give up in our lives that we can all experience joy in the Holy Ghost together? That we can experience joy and unity and, and walking in love one for another. It's not about these things and the way we do and the stuff we do and what I can and can't do and what I'm allowed to do. I have freedom to do that. Big deal. Maybe somebody around you is struggling. And you're going to stand before God and say, I have freedom. It don't matter. It seems to me that it matters to God a lot. That if my freedom, my action, what I do, causes my brother to stumble and to fall into sin that Jesus Christ paid for, it seems like it's a really big deal. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and the things wherewith one may edify another. For me, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. You hear that? He didn't even say that he fell into sin. He said he's a stumble, offended, or even just made weak. Is there something I'm doing that somebody around me, a fellow believer, is just, it's weakening them? Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself and that thing which he alloweth. Isn't that interesting? Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he allows. The things you allow in there, the things you got freedom. Happy is the man that doesn't let those things, those freedoms that you've been given by Jesus Christ. Listen, we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? Everybody agrees to that, right? There is nothing I can do to earn my salvation. But I can bring this condemnation on myself by those freedoms and exercising them in my life when they're not for the benefit of my brother. Isn't that kind of interesting to think about? It's, it's really kind of tough. What about just the spiritual growth of your brother? It says you made him weak. Have you ever done anything or lived in a way that just hindered the spiritual growth of your brother? It's a testimony. As I was reading through and thinking, I remember back to when I first got saved. And I gave up so much, so much stuff. And I, I, I had turned away from all those addictions and crazy. I just didn't want anything to do with them. It's like, I don't, I don't even want to touch any of it. I don't even want to get near it. And I had a cousin and a couple of their friends. And we went to the bar to go play pool. We were just playing pool. And thought, hey, it's kind of like a sports bar. And they kept bugging me, saying, no, 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 nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't drink. And I'm like, well, okay, I just don't think it's right. No, 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 you can do this. So I'm not sure. I don't, I'm scared, really, is what I should have said. I'm scared because I know if I take one, I'm going to be laying on a corner here before long, you know. But somehow they convinced me that it was okay. And I almost felt bad saying you shouldn't. Because literally, you couldn't find a really good scripture to say, you're going to hell if you drink. It's not in there. You're, you're, you're going to make it up if you, if, you, if you want to get to that. But yet, it, was, it almost made me feel like I was doing something wrong by wanting to abstain from something that was an addiction in my past. And they 
got me to the point where I decided to have a beer with them. And that created a time in my early Christianity from that point right, right on where I had some real struggles again. And I, I didn't just like fall back into just being a drunk all the time, but all of a sudden I had, I had this war going on to saying, I know what the Holy Spirit is impressing on me to say, don't do that. But yet these guys are all telling me it's okay, so why not? I might as well just go, go along and hang out with them. And it really stunted my Christian growth for a, quite a long time. Now the Bible says they didn't cause me to sin. I wouldn't in no way say that it was a sin of drinking. In a second I'm going to show you how it was a sin. But what they did was more, more worse than that it was that they stunted my Christian growth. I was going forward and moving forward in and, and, and that sanctification. And they put a, a, an offense in my life that causes me to slow down. That's pretty bad. The Bible says that they would have been better off drug into the ocean and thrown and drowned than to do that to me. That's pretty harsh words, but it's true. Man, we need to really be careful and think about how we live and what we do and what we say and, and, and what we teach. Romans 14.23. Love this verse. Because it really... Uh, messes with you if you enjoy sin or you, you want to try to twist scripture around to, to be allow yourself to do stuff. Romans 14, 23. I switched my Bible around. I've got to go back. I'll be there in a second. Give me a minute. Basically, it says this. I'll summarize it. If you're not absolutely 100% sure that God's given you the liberty to do what you're doing and you do it, you are in sin. It says, He that doubteth is damned if he eat because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So, are you absolutely sure, first of all, that that freedom that you say you have is, been, is given by God? That God has absolutely given you that? Or are you doing like I was doing where you just said, well, everybody around me says it's okay, so it must be okay, so I'm just going to do it. But inside there's this war going, don't do it, don't do it. And I'm like, yeah, but everybody else is, and I don't want to be different. And you're in sin. You do a doubt. You do something that you're not 100% convinced of. And here's the real kicker to me is, if you ex exercise that freedom and you cause somebody like they did to me to do something or live in such a way that they are exercising a freedom that they doubt, not in faith, but just because they, they're told to or because you convinced them to and that, they're doing it not in faith, what does it say about them? If you can't do something in absolute faith and freedom knowing God told me I could do this, you are in sin. Man, God raises the bar so high. It's no longer about this keeping the law, don't keeping the law, doing right and wrong. But a, a friend used to say there's three ways to sin. To do a do or do a don't. It's like to break the law. Don't do a do. Him that knows to do good and doesn't do it to him it's a sin. And to do a doubt. You do something that you're not absolutely 100% sure of in faith, you've committed sin. And you've made your brother to sin in this instance. It's a big deal. A lot of people would say, well, they're just not as mature in their faith as I am. They haven't uh, walked with God and understand God, and they're not as you know, faithful as I am. They don't understand God. God uh, they don't understand the freedom God's given me. But I'm no longer given over to those evil desires. I have freedom. I've been set free from the blood of Christ. 
Look at uh, Galatians 5.22, if you, if you want to go there, I'll just tell you, it's about the fruit of the Spirit, right? And what's it say? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. What's the last one? Self-control. Hey! Boy, there's the shot to the kidney, right? I've got it all, you know, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I'm walking with God, I'm faithful. They just don't understand my freedoms. God's given me the liberty to do this, and I can do whatever God has given me the liberty to do. doesn't matter what you say. It's not in the Bible. Show me in black and white where it's wrong. What about self-control? What about saying, there may be somebody in my midst that I'm hindering their walk with God. If I'm so mature and they're not, if I'm really way up here in my Christianity, they're down here just trying to scrape off the bottom, right? They're just getting there. Then, Mr. Mature Christian, exercise some self-control and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't need it. What do I need? Right? That's a pretty uh, humbling thought, right? In Romans 15 it says this. Verse 1 and 2. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. I, t- I tell you, I get, I, I've done it. And this is why it gets me so frustrated and upset. And, and I, I want to say angry, but then I'll feel bad about saying angry because I'm not. But it, boy, it, it, so often we say, I've got this freedom and I'm going to do it because God's given me the freedom. He set me free. And we don't even consider our brothers. What's it say here? We who are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. In love, we take the one who is weak and say, you know what, you're right, I'm strong. If I've got food and water and place to lay my head at night, I'm going to heaven. I've been set free. I've had my sins paid. I'll lay on a dirt road for the rest of my life because I know where I'm going. If I have to do that to help you not to stumble, to help you to grow, what am I willing to do, to give up, to pursue, to help my brother, to make sure that I'm not the one causing him to stumble? That's just, what am I thinking? And I say that passionately because I do it. I've done it before. And I think back and think, man, how arrogant of me, how, how rude, how unloving, how unlike Christ of me to say, I've got this freedom, I could care less about you. That's just, how unlike Christ is a great way to put it. Now I think I'm going to stop there. <laughs> uh, I was going to go on to talking about forgiveness, but, um, you know, let's, let's let God work on our hearts and uh, help us to realize that the Creator God, the one with all power, that spoke this world into existence and could in a moment and will in a moment bring it to an end, looked at us in our infirmities, says, in our infirmities, in our sin and said, I love them so much. I'm God. I could destroy them all at this moment. 
and say, I'm so sick of you all. You weak, feeble sinners. I'm sick of you. But he didn't. How did he handle it? In love, he gave up what he had. He gave up freedoms and liberties to come down and to take on this body, this flesh that felt pain, that felt emotions, that was constrained by time, space, and things around him. Gave it all up to be tempted, to be tried, and to be crucified so that we could be set free. Amen. And how could we, now having been set free, not walk like he did and say, you know what? I'm willing to give up for my brother or for my sister. I'm willing to let go. I'm willing to be cautious of what I say. I'm willing to not do blank. For the benefit of my brother and sister. Father, we thank you so much. And I praise you for this. Praise you for your word. It challenges us so much. Lord, the moment we think we got it figured out, the moment we think we uh, know it all, we open your word and you crush us again. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the, for the message, Lord, that we are to walk in love. First and foremost, one for another. I thank you that I can count on, Lord, that your word says that if I have a struggle in my life, that my brothers and sisters are supposed to exercise caution for my spiritual benefit. What an encouragement. Thank you. Thank you, God, that you uh, created your family that way. And I pray you'll help me, Lord, to love my neighbor as myself.